back to A Place for Film, the official IU Cinema podcast. My name is David Carter, and joining me later in the episode, I have the pleasure of speaking to Professor Joan Hawkins about the underground film series program that's going to be playing at the IU Cinemas this semester, as well as just the history of the underground film series and underground film in general. It was a great conversation. It was nice talking to her again after having spoken to her at our conversation about Agnes Farda. Thanks for tuning back in again this week. It's been a fun week of movie watching, but I've also been delving into some other more, like a bunch of mixed media. I have been watching old episodes of Iron Chef, the Japanese Iron Chef from the mid to late 90s, early aughts. It's been fun revisiting that, if only because I have a better understanding of cooking. And so I really appreciate the amount of care that goes into these incredible dishes that these people are creating. It's also fun kind of like theorizing how much they're actually accomplishing in an hour versus, you know, it's a reality TV show. So I'm sure they're fudging things for time, but it's been great just watching people create these like immaculate, very imaginative dishes. Doesn't matter if you're picking something that's a little odder to work with, like say, uh, squid or squid ink or you know watching the episodes where it's something like bell pepper or a certain type of pork or beef or something like that it's a good time it's given me a lot of cooking ideas also production value in a late 90s cooking competition show just like far surpasses anything that it seems like is on i don't know there's just a lot of pageantry to it and i've never really looked into you know, the validity of this person investing their fortune into making this kitchen stadium. And I'm always curious, like, you're hearing the win and loss records for these Iron Chefs, and you're like, well, there's only this amount of episodes, and, like, how could they have 74 wins on season four? So you're, like, thinking about, oh, well, they must be doing these competitions off-camera or their episodes that we never got in America. You know, things like that. So that's been fun to visit. I also literally, uh, not even 20 minutes ago before recording this, podcast just watched a very informative youtube video called the problem with nfts the line goes up which is by a youtuber named dan olson whose channel is called folding ideas and it is a two hour and 18 minute video that breaks down the genesis and all the way up until the current problems with nfts so this starts at the with the 2008 financial crisis and how bitcoin was a response to essentially a loss in uh, faith in a centralized banking system and how, you know, you have, there were two sects of that. There was obviously the Occupy movement and, you know, more leftist movements that are just like this whole system is broken. And then there were the other side of that, which were people who said like, this system is broken and we need to reinvent it with us at the top and, you know, exploitative in its own different ways. This brand of YouTube video essays essentially been gaining momentum for years and years and years. And now we are just getting, we, we've essentially moved away from YouTubers just doing simple videos about like pop cultural things to very complex economics and sociological issues, you know, or there was another YouTube uh, video that was making the rounds that was pretty popular a couple months ago called Disney's Fast Pass, a complicated history by this YouTube channel called Defunct Land, which is about the history of amusement park rides and amusement parks themselves and all the oddities that go along with it, where they talked about the economics of Disney's fast pass and like how that change and shifted in the science that goes into determining uh, humans willingness to wait in line. And it 
is fascinating within itself and speaks to like larger cultural milieu and or speaks to larger cultural things and human behavior. I've enjoyed this brand of video essay for quite some time. But if you are just a person who's a lot like me, who knows enough about NFTs to understand that like, yes, they are a scam and they also have an environmental impact, but don't know like the context, the history, what's currently happening with it, why it's such a scam. You just get the whiff of it being a scam, but wanting to understand more. I would say definitely check out this video if you have the time to devote two hours and 18 minutes to something like this. It is just a very cut and dry, like talking head explanation about the history of NFTs with supplemental materials spliced in to help you, you know, illustrating uh, what's going on. So once again, that is called the problem with NFTs. Uh, the line goes up. And I've just been thinking about Hamaguchi's Drive My Car since watching it a couple of weeks ago just a movie that has stuck with me. It's a movie that feels very confessional as I've been thinking about it in its three-hour runtime. I have decided that you need that type of space to have this very slow burn excavation of people's emotions and their regrets and their grief. And I find the whole thing hypnotic and entrancing and I can't really stop thinking about it. So I'm very excited to hopefully see this when it plays at the writer again. Next week, well, it's playing at the writer for the first time, but I'm hoping to see it again at the writer. If you haven't seen Drive My Car yet, I think it is very much worth your time. Um, I think it's one of the most exciting films that came out in 2021. I, I wish it had a bigger, wider release, but obviously in a three-hour Japanese art house film based off of the writings of Murakami is probably a hard sell for a lot of people, but I haven't stopped thinking about the two lead performances in this movie. I haven't stopped thinking about what the text is trying to convey and what the subtext is like butting heads against with the text. It's, it, you know, it being a movie about communication. I don't know. I don't want to say much more about the movie, except that you should definitely check out Drive My Car if you have a chance. But with that out of the way, I think it's time for us to move on to the IU Cinema schedule for the week of January 24th. This week at the IU Cinema schedule, we have the second film in our President's Choice series, which is going to be a special virtual event of the Trojan Women. This is on Tuesday, January 25th at 7 p.m. Uh, it is free and there's no ticket required. This is the next pick in Michael McGrobby's President's Choice series, currently IU Chancellor Michael McGrobby. Just some things to mention about this event before we get into the description. Uh, to participate in this virtual event, be sure to have downloaded Zoom software to the device that you want to use to watch this event. Register for the January 25th Zoom seminar to receive a link through which you will join the event at the time and date noted. To watch the film, you must tune into the live Zoom event. At the end of the film introduction, a slide will appear with instructions on how to watch the film, which will include a web address as well as a password. Please note the film will not screen via Zoom, you will need to open a web browser, type in the web address, and press enter. The web address must be entered into your web address bar. It will not work if you type it into a search engine bar. Once on the film's landing page, you will enter the password where it says enter password. 
If you have any more questions uh, or need more, need more information about this and IU Cinema's virtual events, please visit our Virtual Cinema Frequently Asked Questions page on the IU Cinema website. As I mentioned last week during the schedule, this particular President's Choice film series features the films of Master Director Michael Kokoyanis, who over the course of a 15-year span made a trilogy adapting Euripides, Iphigenia, the Trojan Women, and Electra, combining elements of cinematic style from both the European art house and Hollywood filmmaking traditions. Kokoyanis films remind us of the continued immediacy and relevance of these ancient tragic tales. This one in particular, The Trojan Women, uh, is from 1971, and it is about Hecuba, played by Catherine Hepburn, Queen of the Trojans, uh, who is the disposed ruler of a ruined kingdom after the Trojan War. Her son and Troy's companion, Hector, has been killed, and his widow, Andromache, played by Vanessa Redgrave, faces the devastating news that King Agamemnon has sent her son, Astinax, to death ensuring the extinction of Troy's royal bloodline. Meanwhile, Hecuba's daughter Cassandra, played by Genevieve Bujold, driven to madness by the ravages of war, dreads her potential new role as concubine to Agamemnon, and the infamous Helen of Troy, played by Irene Pappas, awaits her own fate. The Trojan Women is a searing portrait of the aftermath of war and the women who remain in the uncertainty between life and death long after the battles have ended, Irene Pappas, who appears in all three Kakayanis Euripides films, won the National Board of Review Best Actress Award for her role as Helen of Troy. And once again, that is a virtual event that is happening on Tuesday, January 25th. It is free and there is no ticket required. Next up, we have our Thursday, January 27th event at 7 p.m. This is the first in the semester's underground film series films, which me and Joan talk about later in this episode. So I won't belabor what this film is, as Joan does a wonderful job kind of communicating that and giving a little bit of context. But once again, this is Thursday, January 27th at 7 p.m. It is free but ticketed for all of our in-person events. Just always remember, masks are required for all attendees and the cinema staff at indoor events. Due to our limited screening schedule and currently reduced seating capacity, we strongly encourage patrons to buy tickets online in advance to avoid getting sold out as there is no standby line or late seating. This is an experimental program on 16mm from 1962 to 1985. The film in this program is called Taka and Eiko, The Lemurs Cinepoetics. Since the 1960s, pioneering Japanese husband and wife team Takahiko and Akiko Lemora have produced works that routinely push the limits of cinematic and intermedial expression, with oeuvres that span experiments in abstraction, structuralism, and erotic surrealism. This program, compiling a range of the duo's works, includes films by Taka focusing on the metamorphosis of cinematic color and the visualization of intimacy. The centerpiece, Taka and Eiko, is a double portrait of the two filmmakers, too rarely screened, this program also includes works by Akiko Lamora, often remarked upon for their combination of film poetry, spiritualism, and the diaristic. Of note, music for the films includes original scores by Yoko Ono and Jacques Becquiat. The films in the program include Taka and Eiko, Ai in Love, Mon Petit Album, Eero in Colors, and Late Lunch. Once again, we talk about that later in the episode. That is a free but ticketed event happening on Thursday, January 27th at 7 p.m. Coming up on Friday, January 
28th and Sunday, January 30th for the Friday, January 28th screening at 7 p.m. We have Chameleon Street, which is part of our International Art House series. This is at 7 p.m. It is $4 for students and $7 for non-students. This is a 1989 comedy drama by director Wendell B. Harris Jr., winner of the Grand Jury Prize at the 1990 Sundance Film Festival, yet criminally underseen for over three decades. Chameleon Street recounts the improbable but true story of Michigan con man Douglas Street, the titular chameleon, who successfully impersonated his way up the socioeconomic ladder by posing as a magazine reporter, an Ivy League student, a respected surgeon, and a corporate lawyer, elevated by a dexterous performance and daring direction from multi-hyphenate actor-writer-director Wendell B. Harris Jr., the film puts a lens on race, class, performance, and American identity that has lost none of its relevance. At once piercingly funny and aesthetically mischievous, Chameleon Street is a lost masterpiece of black cinema, according to the BFI, long overdue to take its rightful place in the independent film canon. Newly restored in 4K from the original camera negative under the supervision of Wendell B. Harris Jr. himself. This is most famous to me as a fan of the duo Black Star with uh, Yasin Bey and Tylib Kweli uh, as being the like opening dialogue for a song called Brown Skin Lady off of the album Black Star. So I am so excited to finally get to see this movie where a, you know, a sample that is near and dear to my heart comes from. So please come and check that out. That is playing twice, once again, on Thursday, January the 28th at 7 p.m. and Sunday, January 30th at 1 p.m. Finally, a highly anticipated screening uh, for those in the know. We have on January 28th at 10 p.m., the next in our Not Quite Midnight series, $4, we have Andre Zulowski's Possession, which at this point, I feel as if it has completely been recanonized as a horror classic, an art house classic, it has completely been reclaimed, feels very full circle as when this originally screened back at the Ice Cinema, oh man, in like 2013, 2014, at the just straight up midnight movie series. This was very much still on the fringes of something that people were reappraising and were vouching for. And it was kind of this like lost little gem at that at this point. And for the better part of a decade, we have now taken this film starring Sam Neill and Isabel Ajiani, and it is just now considered part of the horror canon. And for those who don't know what possession is, it is from 1981. It was banned upon its original release in 1981. Andrzej Zulowski's stunningly choreographed nightmare of a marriage unraveling is an experience unlike any other. Professional spy Mark, played by Sam Neill, returns to his West Berlin home to find his wife, Anna, in probably one of the greatest performances of the late 20th century by Isabel Ajiani. Uh, she won Best Actress at Cannes for this performance, uh, insistent on a divorce. As Anna's frenzied behavior becomes ever more alarming, Mark discovers a truth far more sinister than his wildest suspicions. With its pulsating score, visceral imagery, and some of the most haunting performances ever captured on screen, Possession is a cinematic delirium at its most intoxicating. Um, and just a content warning, this contains depictions of self-harm and suicide. But this movie is near and dear to my heart. Uh, it was nice to say that I was at that screening in like 2013 or 2014. And I'll get to introduce this screening that's happening next Friday. So... If you want to have a little bit more context on the movie Possession, please come to that screening. I will try to give a 
a succinct but context-filled introduction to the film. If you want to read a little bit more about Possession, Jesse Pasternak, one of my fellow blog contributors, has written a wonderful piece on the movie Possession and his relationship to it. And there's been so much great writing about Possession around the web. Uh, I would especially Google the name Angelica Jade Bastian in the words Possession to find some uh, little writing she's done on it. Uh, I've quite enjoyed her points of view on this film. And yeah, you will never see, this is what I call a film that seems if it was made from a universe separate from our own, just a piece of very singular art, uh, very visceral art. So please come out to that. That is once again, part of our Not Quite Midnight series and tickets for that are $4. And that's going to do it for us for the schedule at the IU Cinema. Before we turn it over to Professor Joan Hawkins, I would just like to plug since i'm not doing these at the end of the episode sometimes our theme music is by steve alfred in the rational discourse you can follow the iu cinema at multiple social media platforms at iu cinema uh, you can follow me at samurai flicks on twitter at robert dolphy on instagram at robert dolphy on letterboxd and please just keep in touch with other film-related things around town, please go check out the writer's website. They actually just recently put out the physical version of the writer magazine for January. Like I said, Drive My Car is playing the next week, but for a full schedule for the writer film series, please follow them on various social media and pick up the writer magazine at where it can be located. And check out the Cicada Cinema's screenings happening in February. We will be showing Sister Street Fighter at the Orbit Room on February 17th as part of our collaboration in partnership with the American Genre Film Archive and the Orbit Room itself. We've been calling it Cicada Underground. And if you are looking for something that's a little bit more art housey, then please come to FAR on February 5th, where we will be screening uh, Christopher Pettit's Radio On. I've talked about it a few times on this podcast. I think I plug it at the end of this episode, honestly. But yeah, please come and check those films out. And without further ado, I will turn it over to Professor Joan Hawkins, and she will enlighten us about the history of underground film, its intricacies, what makes this semester's underground film so special, and the history of the underground film series as it pertains to Bloomington, Indiana. So join us there. I'm a professor in cinema and media studies as part of the media school. I work at the extreme ends of the culture spectrum. So I work on the intersection between avant-garde slash experimental film on the one side and body genre on the other side. So I write on horror and the avant-garde. It is so nice to have you here, Joan. I don't know. Have you have you been on the podcast before? Not yours. Way back in the day. I can't even remember who was doing it way back in the day. When John was first director of IU Cinema, there was a podcast and I was on that one. I'm glad to have you on this one. The last time we spoke, that was a recording. We were talking about Agnes Varda, which yeah, was the life yeah. of conversation. Yeah. And my friends like to bring it up a lot. They're like, you should have Joan back on again. So 
Hello, Paula. Here it's I nice am. to have you back on again. <laughs> Joan, I've brought you on because I wanted to talk to you about underground film yeah. and specifically the underground film series at the IE Cinema. But for those who don't know, in Bloomington at large, the underground film series has been around since like the mid to late 90s, yeah. if I'm not mistaken before there was an IU cinema. So there's lots of new listeners, lots of new faces coming to the cinema, people who haven't been coming a long time. And so I just kind of wanted to give like a brief background on like what the underground film series is and, you know, the distinction between underground film and art house film and the program this semester with the two underground film series programs playing at the IU cinema. First off, how did the underground film series get started in Bloomington, period? So when... Film studies at IU used to be spread out across a whole bunch of different departments and programs. And when we finally were able to kind of come together in one area, which was under the auspices of communication and culture, had a kind of critical studies in film. At that point, there was, we had a huge collection. It was part of our AV, IU AV collection. We had a large collection of 16 millimeter films. And a group of graduate students first started the City Lights program, where it was their idea to show classical Hollywood and European art films for free on Friday nights, just using these films that we had as part of our collection. So that was fine. So we were doing that for a while. And after, I think it was about two years, there was an, a group of graduate students who came to me in CMCL and said, you know, well, that's all well and good, but what about the rest of us, and we would like to have something that's devoted to experimental and underground cinema. And so we, we set up the underground series, and it's, it's student, I'm the faculty advisor, but it's student curated, it's, graduated, it's curated by the graduate students. And when we first started doing it, we were having screenings every Saturday night for free. First it was over in Valentine Hall, 310, and then we moved over to Radio TV 251. And then we did it with City Lights every Friday night and Underground every Saturday night. That went on for a while. And then we started kind of, of alternating, where there would be one Friday would be City Lights, one Friday would be uh, Underground. And then when IU Cinema opened, and, and those, I mean, again, those were, it was great because there were these, they were free screenings. We were able to arrange with the parking people so that people could actually come and park. And we had, I don't know, like, I mean, like the films like Andy Warhol's Blowjob, the place was packed. For other, other films that they didn't know so well, <laughs> there, would be, there would be just a few diehards. So we sort of, our audience always varied between like, you know, 15 people and 110. And we had some really wacky, gnarly screenings because we had these old, old, old projectors that were just up there in the projector booth. I mean, I, I really remember times when people were like actually having to physically hold a lens in the projector with their hand while they were projecting the film because the lens was stripped. <laughs> it's just like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that change once the I uh -huh. cinema became this like kind of hub for all film act to a certain extent that's how i kind of view the ice cinema as when i'm coming to bloomington around this time is that it feels like most things kind of consolidated into the iu yeah. cinema because they had this facility that allowed you to do things and so i'm assuming for things like andy warhol's chelsea girls where you need two projectors to even play the film properly it was a boon but i'm just kind of curious how else it affected the film yeah. series in in two ways one was that 
we had been really dependent on both the quality of the films that we had in our collection, which often weren't in really great shape. Like we would buy these movies from distributor catalogs. And for people who don't know about them, when they used to sell films to like private collectors, old 16 millimeter prints to, to private collectors, private collectors would do all kinds of things with them. Like they would just chop out scenes from a film that they didn't like. They would add in scenes from another film that they liked instead. So if you were watching a Godard film, you could be watching Masculine and Femina, and suddenly there could be some scene from A Woman is a Woman that would just be spliced in because the person who owned the film liked it. And then they would in turn resell those prints that had been cut or had been added to in these film catalogs. And you never knew when you bought a film through these catalogs exactly what you were going to get. So we would get these movies that were just, sometimes there was a reel missing. I mean, so we had this list of films always for IU Cinema, and we would carefully annotate if it was really wacky. But they often weren't in the best condition, like either the whole film or the, like the, the whole proper film. And so that was the first thing that happened, is that the crew at IU Cinema, John and Manny, would look at the film and they would see, like, is this in condition that we can project it and project it beautifully? And if it wasn't, they would rent a better copy of the film. So that was one of the things that changed. And then the other thing that changed is that they provided a venue where we could actually invite people to come. So the very first semester that IU Cinema was open, we invited Kenneth Anger to come as part of, as part of the underground film series. That's a really good case in point because we have had two experiences showing his movies. We showed a program of Kenneth Anger films once over in radio TV. And we had about, I guess about 25 people there. It wasn't a bad audience, but it wasn't huge. And then we showed it, it showed the same program, the exact same program of films of, at IU Cinema with Kenneth Anger there, standing room only. And partly that was because people were so, uh, wow. especially that first semester that IU Cinema was open, people were so excited about the cinema. But partly it was because they could come, they could see Kenneth Anger, it was a beautiful venue, they knew the prints would be great and projected beautifully. And so it was a huge, it was just a huge help for us. So even though we're doing fewer programs than we used to do, we're not rolling the dice with our fingers crossed every time we turn the projector on. And we're not having to hold the lens in the projector while we're doing it. My husband's not having to stand up in the projection booth, actually taking the film and wrapping it around his arm as it's being projected. So all that stuff is, uh, has changed dramatically. <laughs> Were there ever moments, you know, whenever anything it starts scrappy and then it becomes a little bit more legitimate? Were there ever moments where you missed it just like a little bit? I think the fact that we didn't have to, because we were just this weird little group, we didn't really have to answer to anybody. And so the fact that we could show, I mean, we, we did things that you couldn't do at the IU Cinema because we weren't necessarily paying rights or we weren't necessarily doing everything that you're supposed to do. For example, right now, uh, Yoko Ono has pulled all of her prints, all of her film prints from the Museum of Modern Art because she's in the process of restoring them. Mm. And I'm hoping, remastering and restoring them, I'm hoping that means that there's going to be a, a nice box set of her films coming out. But like right now, you can't rent, legitimately rent a Yoko Ono film in the United States because she's pulled all the films from distribution. I happen to own a bunch of 
DVDs of Yoko Ono Prince. If we were still doing the program at Radio TV 251, I would feel much safer, like showing one of my DVDs. Like I could not take one of my DVDs to Alicia and say, hey, I know we can't pay rights for this. I know that it's not exactly legal, but could we show this film? I mean, she would have to say like, no, no, (laughs) we cannot. (laughs) How did you yourself come to underground film and like come to something that you now enjoy teaching and exhibiting throughout your life? And like, how did it come to you and how did you come to it? Yeah, so... um, So I came up in the 60s, and at that time, film studies was just getting started as a legitimate thing to study in the university. And boy, I mean, they had to make the argument that film was art in order to be able to have film studies classes at the university. And so that meant that they they just didn't show B-girls from Mars or something as part of a class. They never would, because it always had to be either a high art, uh, international art house film, or it had to be something that would be like an experimental film. Anyway, something that didn't qualify as mainstream entertainment, had never qualified as mainstream entertainment. It was a struggle to be able to show what we think of now as Hollywood classics. You could show Hitchcock, but to show something like Casablanca, that was like a big revolutionary moment when we were able to show Casablanca as part of the class. So I started, I came to Underground Films for seeing some films, always in another class context, like in art classes or in literature classes. And then I started going to the art houses that were in San Francisco, and they were running midnight screenings at that time. And midnight screenings would either be what we call underground films, or they would be these experimental art films. And my friends and I started going to those, and as we started going to those, I just became more and more taken with these movies that don't get, they just don't get seen very much. But they're made by people who are really, really deeply devoted to cinema, who often are distributing stuff on their own, or there'll be like a a distribution company like Canyon Cinema that'll represent a whole bunch of different people. But there aren't like big companies involved at all, either in the making of the film or in the distribution or often exhibition of the film. And usually the films are exhibited now even in places that aren't, unless it's part of a really special show. I mean, they're, they're not exhibited in any of the chain, any of the big chain, corporate chain cinemas. So art houses will show them, museums will show them, universities will show them. That's sort of the only venue for them. You can get some stuff streaming, but it's even hard. I think Canyon Cinema has started streaming, but it's even, you know, they just don't have the money to digitize stuff so that they can stream. I think there's somewhat of a confusion between what the difference between uh, art house cinema and underground cinema is. And obviously those distinctions can kind of become sort of arbitrary to a certain extent, just like how underground cinema and grindhouse cinema intersect occasionally too so if you were to give someone who wasn't as familiar with underground cinema but was interested in viewing it and wanted the distinction between that and something that would be defined as like art house cinema like how would you define that distinction i guess i would define art house cinema as as movies they're usually international import films or american independent films that do not have to make back the majority of their budget within the first weekend of being released because of that They can appeal to a niche audience. They can allow an audience to build over time. And that all means that they can address different kinds of issues than a blockbuster film that has to make back its money right away. 
So, for example, a wonderful art house film like Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, which is about a young woman who is, she wants to get an abortion. She can't let her parents know, and she has to travel from Pennsylvania to New York to get the abortion. Okay, well, just that little description, just the fact that I talked about abortion, I said it like four times, that lets you know that this is not a film that is going to make back its budget the first weekend, and it can't go into massive release. I mean, because you'd have people who are against abortion who would be picketing the theater, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a film like that can play in art houses. It has a very specific audience. It can build slowly over time. It can uh, can have uh, people who see it can use it for class adoptions, etc. And it's a very powerful, dramatic film that isn't designed to appeal to a mass audience. So that's sort of how I would talk about art house film, or it would be like French film, like the films of Agnès Varda, films of Juliette that star Juliette Binoche, for example, Claude Silsmar. Was it Cloud Sills Marnots? I think Clouds of Sills Maria. Yeah, that was wonderful. And that's a, that's a classic art house film. So then you have experimental film, which is made to where the person who's making the, mo- the film is as interested in dealing with film or video as a medium and what the medium can do, as they are interested in the story that they're telling or the entertainment value of the film. And so you get these films. Sometimes they're like almost like surreal psychodrama kinds of films. Sometimes they're films that really are like, if you look at Michael Snow's films, they are films that are just, you know, where it's just a film that'll be made up of tilts and pans. Like Stan Brackett used to just draw on film and scratch on film. So those are experimental films, which are art objects sort of in and of themselves and that they're, as interested in dealing with the medium as they are in anything else, as, as in communicating. Underground films are these wildcat films. So John Waters is probably the underground filmmaker that most people would know. Andy Warhol made underground films. They were called underground because they were originally shown in basement cinemas, often with just like somebody had a 16 millimeter projector that would be there in the back. Sometimes they experiment with the form of cinema but often they are just these kind of wild, push-the-envelope, edgy, edgy, edgy topics that get dealt with so that John Waters can make films. Like, I mean, really, back in the 60s, starring a 300-pound drag queen named Divine, for example, and that there was a market for that. Or that By the time Andy Warhol was working with, with Paul Morrissey, he had just a whole flotilla of drag queens who were taking most of the women's roles in his movies, for example. This was stuff that, I mean, this was when homosexuality, homosexual acts were still illegal in most states of the United States. So to be able to actually just show that and have it be taken for granted was part of what underground film does. So underground film is always stuff that kind of pushes the envelope a lot. Are there underground, because we always talk about underground film as this at least my perception of how it's talked about amongst people or what gets screened it's like films generally between like made between like the late 50s and like late 80s obviously i know underground film is still being made and there was obviously underground film in the 90s and aughts and 2010s but like who are those artists like what are those films like that have like kind of more recently in the, the last like 20 to 30 years that have piqued your interest there's a whole group of people who came up with uh, punk cinema and who's, who were showing their films in punk clubs. 
you know, some of the some of the filmmakers. Oh, Amos Poe was one of them. People who, if you've seen the documentary Blank Generation or Blank City, the filmmakers who were involved with that. Jim Jarmusch started with them before he began making uh, kind of mainstream films. So those folks were operating in the 90s and into the early 2000s. And then there's still a bunch of them who are continuing to make very edgy films, like Beth B., who first she made uh, this great film that was about the still ongoing but now would be the last existing freak show in the United States. She made a film about that. Um, She made a film just recently about Lydia Lunch that was fantastic. Yes, I saw. It's great. Yeah. So she would be one of the people that I would consider to be still an underground filmmaker. There is this guy, let's see if I can remember his name. His his first name is Todd. It's not Todd Hanks. It'd be great if Todd Haynes was just secretly making underground films, though. Well, he did start out making underground yeah. films, but then he went on to something else. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhat of a mainstream. Well, I guess he has a mainstream career now. Yeah. If you're making a movie like Dark Water, starring Mark Ruffalo, you're making yeah. mainstream movies. Yeah, I know. I miss his, I miss his earlier films, though. But at any rate, he's made films uh, based on novels by Dennis Cooper, who is a really 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 edgy guy you know where he's he's writing films about or he writes books about like serial killers and people who are serial killers not because they are not because they are emotionally or psychologically tormented but because they actually enjoy killing people and where that becomes part of the movie where the movie tries to sort of hook you into sort of being on the side of the serial killer sort of like Dexter, but without any kind of moral edge to it. It's not somebody who is a sweetheart. But there's like, like there's a Chicago Underground Film Festival that is fantastic, that operates every year uh, over in Logan Square, that just, you know, where they have like a week long of underground programming. Some of it'll be, you know, documentaries that they themselves have solicited or have helped to fund so that underground filmmakers can work. And then others, sometimes it's like people like Doris Wishman who are underground filmmakers from the historical period you're talking about and they'll have a bigger retrospective. But there's just a ton of stuff that's still being produced. So if you think about punk, neo-punk sensibilities, that will take you to the underground business. Speaking of the contemporary, I also wanted to talk about what's currently being programmed at the Ice Cinema this semester for the Underground Film Series. There are two programs, neither of which I know very much about, so I was hoping you could enlighten me in the audience with that, a little bit of context as to what these two films are. I know on Thursday, January 27th, there is a program called Taka and Echo, the Limor's Cinepoetics. And then on Thursday, April 28th, there is a program called Milking and Scratching, the Handmade Films of Naomi Uman, or Uman. What are these films? Uh, what is the amount of context you would like to give me in the audience before we go into them, if we are able to make them? So um, so the first one that's coming up, Taka and, and Ako, just the fact that we don't know who they are the, <laughs> means that's a good indication already that we're dealing with underground filmmakers or experimental filmmakers. These are films about these two people or some works by them. They have really worked on pushing the limits of cinematic expression. So they do a lot of abstract stuff, a lot of 
structuralist cinema, by which I mean cinema that really is just showing you like what can movies do? Like, what are the uh, formal aspects of cinema making? And let's draw our attention to those for a second. They uh, work with a lot of erotic surrealism so that there will be There'll be stuff that doesn't necessarily linearly make sense and or only make sense according to sort of a dream logic, but that taps in to people's unconscious desires. And when we talk about eroticism and surrealism, you have to remember that, you know, the surrealists really did want to harness the unconscious. My favorite quote about um, unconscious sexuality was by Carol Clover, actually, where she said that if the unconscious were politically correct. It would not need to be unconscious. And so this is usually erotic stuff. It usually will offend somebody. So these are abstract films. They have like a kind of a poetic side to them. There's a kind of spiritual side to them. And there's also a diary side to them. But they also are cut through with this kind of wacky surrealist sexuality. There's music that has been done for these films. There's some original scores by Yoko. And also by uh, Jacques Beckard, who did Late Lunch and Mon Petit Album. And we have not shown anything like this in the Underground series before. So this is a so really um, kind of extraordinary opportunity to see in a beautiful setting films that just you can't see anywhere else. And for Milking and Scratching, which is coming in April, it's a, a, a woman filmmaker. And again, when we think about when we think about experimental films, often women are talked about as experimental filmmakers. When you talk about uh, exploitation or underground films, usually it's all it's a guys' club. I mean, there's Doris Wishman, and then then there are all these guys. So Naomi Orman already is kind of interesting in that she is she's a woman filmmaker working now within this mode. She does hand manipulation techniques, and so she like will use nail varnish to get rid of the female form. Like she has a strip of 1970s pornography, and she uses nail varnish to take to so it looks like a negative image of a woman. Um, she takes abstract approaches to love stories, where she'll use like a monochrome palette. She does hand-scratched films. She does industrial scores where she puts industrial scores against something that you wouldn't expect an industrial score to be against. And then the, there was also the, one of the films that we're showing is also a film. It's called Leche, which means milk. And it's just this uh, kind of documentary about a Mexican farm. It's after you see all of this kind of really edgy, edgy, edgy stuff, then you get to this other thing that is, it's not a straightforward documentary. So it's not just, here is Juan, and here he is with his cow, and this is what we're doing. <laughs> um, but, but it is an attempt to seriously depict like the problems that people are facing, trying to maintain farms in the face of like huge agribusiness, for example, and to tell the story in a way that's personally compelling and informative, but still also visually interesting and perhaps a little challenging to the view. Thank you so much, because even I needed that context before I went and saw these this semester. But I wanted to ask you two more questions, one of which was for someone listening to this who hasn't dipped their toes into underground films. And, you know, obviously we can say, we'll just come to these and jump into the deep end of the pool. But if they wanted to do some like self-study before they came to IE Cinema Screenings, 
What are just the handful of easily accessible, generally easily accessible underground films you would suggest to somebody to kind of, you know, whet their appetite? Yeah, so I think there's Andy Warhol films that you can find, I think, on YouTube pretty easily. So his screen tests where somebody would come to the factory, Andy Warhol would just set up the camera and would just turn the camera on and for the length of time of a reel of film, so like three to five minutes, you would get Lou Reed sitting on a stool doing whatever Lou Reed was going to do. It's an experiment with time. And that's part of what makes it sort of experimental or underground. Underground because you're dealing usually with these characters who belonged to the New York underground at the time, but really something that pushes your comfort level with time because you're just watching somebody not doing very much for two minutes. Okay, so if people have access to Criterion, to the Criterion channel, you can flip through, and there is almost always a, a spot on the Criterion channel that says like cult movies or experimental film. And that would be a, an easy place to look. There are, um, again, going back to YouTube, if you can find Andy Warhol's film, Poor Little Rich Girl, that's a wonderful film to start with because it's the whole first reel is out of focus. And it's just Edie Sedgwick kind of talking to the camera person. She's doing various things, but she's just basically talking to the camera person. And she was angry with Andy Warhol when he made the movie with her. So when he first sets up the film and announces what the title of the film is, she says, F*** you. And then she doesn't talk to him until the cameraman wakes up. And then the film comes into focus and we have this film. And it's just, it sounds totally weird, but it's like one of the most moving films I've ever seen. Like this blurred image of Edie, and if you know about her, she she died when she was in her 30s from a drug overdose, and she was exploited by a lot of people because she was so young and so pretty and photographed so beautifully. That, that film sort of is a, a very kind of weirdly poignant but very deeply challenging film. For experimental films, Stan Brackage is easy to find. And especially if you start out with his home movies and before going to something like Dog Star Man, those are films that kind of let you in sort of slowly. The film Chien Andalou by Salvador Dali and uh, Luis Bunuel is a, a good introduction to something that kind of crosses straddles, I think, underground and um, experimental film. And then there's a wonderful experimental filmmaker, she unfortunately dead now, Maya Darren, who uh, made Meshes of the Afternoon, which is a beautiful film. And that would be a good one to start with. I mean, some of those I still need to catch up on. I, I would say, admittedly, my underground film, not knowledge, but more uh, viewing habits have fallen off, <laughs> unfortunately, during the pandemic. So there are there are blank, there are holes I need to fill. So thank you for that. I think that that has happened for a lot of people. And I would say that these are films that really do lend themselves to being seen on the big screen because you need, I mean, this, this will sound like it's not going to be a big crowd pleaser, but you need some way of sort of forcing yourself to kind of stick through the discomfort level. They don't, Absolutely. they don't work if you are able to just pause and go make yourself a cup of coffee or pour yourself a strong drink before you go back to watching them. I mean, part of the way that they work is the way is uh, by forcing you to kind of sit there until you acclimate yourself to the film. Yeah, that is one of my favorite aspects of transgressive cinema is mostly just you have to go on the journey with it. 
because until you get to the end of it, you don't actually have a fully formed idea as to not even just what it is, but how you feel about it. Uh, and I don't know. Some of the, the best conversations I've had about movies have come after like very obtuse or very aggressive films watched with friends. So that's a great point. Thank you for saying that. The last thing I just wanted to ask, is there anything you would like to promote or highlight or say to the audience as they go forth into the rest of the year and maybe ah. explore my underground film, but you know, just in general, anything yeah, you just want to say. Even if, it, if people aren't going to be going to see underground film, I would, I really encourage people to just pick some movie that you don't know, like you don't know anything about it other than maybe some aspect of it sounds interesting to you, but it's a foreign film. It's maybe made by somebody you haven't heard of before. It's maybe made by somebody who belongs to a group that you don't self-identify with. Just something to expand your horizons. You know, obviously I'm a big film fan. This has been what I've devoted much of my life to. But I think that cinema has the ability to like really reach in to your gut in a way that other film form, the other art forms don't have. And so even like reading a novel, which as wonderful as that can be, that can plunge you into perhaps the point of view of somebody that you wouldn't, that is different from you. But nothing does it the way film does. Nothing does it. Nothing asks you to literally occupy the point of view of somebody that you don't think you have anything in common with like film does. So choose something that's outside your wheelhouse and make yourself watch it. That is beautiful. Thank you so much, Joan. And while not an underground film, if you want to check out something that is lean towards that, wink, wink, maybe uh, come to come to Teton, uh, which is playing tonight. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. this episode won't be up in time. You know, and if you are looking for something outside the IU cinema, Cicada Cinema is going to be screening um, Radio On at Bar uh, on February 5th. So please come and check that out. But Please come to the IU Cinema on the for those two programs that me and uh, Joan just talked about. It's going to be a lovely time. I'm hoping to make at least one of them. Joan, thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to have you back on again. Also can't wait to see you in person again <laughs> at yeah, some point. Yeah, I know. It'll be nice. I know. Well, come to the underground, come to the underground the, screening yeah, the and you'll see me. <laughs> okay, great. That is, it's a deal. But thank you so much for doing this. Uh, this has been A Place for Film. We will see you at the movies. Good night.